you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm just as big of a fan of puns as the next guy, except when it comes to the character of Graven. Don't you feel like trying something new? Don't you feel like breaking out or breaking us in two? You don't do the things that I do. You want to do things I can't do. Always something breaking us in two. You and I could Hello, hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there, my name's Sean Engel, and my job on the show is to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner being forefront of the episode this time, as, well, we're covering a Green Lantern book, Green Lantern number 97. Which, if you look at the cover of it, you would think would be an action-heavy, fist-pounding episode dealing with Kyle and Graven, the alleged scion of Darkseid. Well, he's got the I-beams thing down, so yeah, I guess he might be related to Darkseid. But to me, he's just another one of the failed villains of the Green Lantern of this time. However, if you looked at that cover and thought, wow, this is going to be an action-heavy issue, you'd be wrong, because this one is actually a very dialogue-heavy one, uh, dealing with Kyle and his breakup with Donna, and Allison, who, surprisingly enough, actually wants to try and get them back together. It's kind of an interesting issue. Uh, there's a lot of juxtaposition between Kyle fighting and him talking with Allison. There's a little hint that Allison might be a little more into Kyle than she lets on. It's really good writing from Ron Mars, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it. I'm also looking forward to getting into another episode or another issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, this time number seven, which gets a little dark. In fact, it gets pretty dark in the fact that it uh, deals with some, well, vampiric characters that the Green Lantern has to fight. A sort of tragic story about a Green Lantern in a coma. <sighs> And then a story about an analog for Hitler, with even a title of The Triumph of the Will. Yeah, they're not bearing the lead in the slightest in that one. But overall, it's a far better issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly than uh, the last one with Power Girl and Tubby Oprah Green Lantern. Ugh, that was not to my liking at all. Plus, we've got a ton of emails from you wonderful listeners to get into. A couple of new promos that, well, at least one new promo that I'm really proud to be playing. And uh, that's all going to be coming up, of course, right after I take this little break, where I play said promos. And then we'll get into our coverage of not only Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number 7, but first off, Green Lantern, number 97. Stay tuned, folks, right after the break. Could stay at home and stare into each other's eyes. Maybe 
third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up! Oh, and Atomic matter is turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. And what you just heard there was a promo for a brand new podcast hosted by veteran podcaster Michael Bradley. He's returning to the podcast fold after a, well, a slight hiatus from his thrilling adventures of Superman show. And this time he's bringing in another great character into the fold, Batman. Yes, Michael is back doing a Superman-Batman podcast where he's going to be covering adventures of the dynamic duo. Well, I guess not the dynamic duo because that's Batman and Robin, but the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight Detective. I was very fortunate to get to listen to the first episode of this, uh, kind of a preview. Michael was really, really generous in asking my opinion on how the uh, episode should be, and... uh I was just so thrilled that he did that, and the episode was great. If you enjoyed anything that Michael's put out, whether it be Thrilling Adventures of Superman, The uh, Legends of the Dark Knight, or even Green Lantern's Light, you're going to love this show. Michael Bradley is a great podcaster. 
I'm glad to have him back in the podcasting realm, and I can't wait to listen to this show. In fact, I'm thinking by the time this episode comes out, the first episode should be out. So go to iTunes, go to greatcrypton.com, and download the show. I guarantee you will enjoy it. But uh, one thing that I guarantee that I will enjoy is reading email from you wonderful, wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first email this time out comes from my good friend, Mr. Luke Jacknetti, and he writes in with the title, A Wave of Hatred Comes On Like a Flood. He says, Sean, brother on, brother on, brothers in blood. Hate so much easier to feel than love. Brother on, brother on, brothers in blood. Always good to start an email with some classic anthrax. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him that. Sadly, I don't know, aside from the I'm the man era, that much of anthrax. I, I lived in a small town. We didn't have any radio stations that played that. And I got more into Metallica than I did anthrax. So there's there's my out on that. Sorry, Luke. But Luke continues on. Now then, I just want to drop you a quick note to say that I really enjoy your and Professor Allen's coverage of the hate crime storyline. Like your earlier crossover episode with Michael Bailey for Kyle and Connor, these two are a 90s modernist take on the old Hal Ollie team, and they work well together. Dixon and Mars seem to have a good handle on the nature of human emotion to quote-unquote ratchet up and feed on itself. The fact that the story also gave equal sort of treatment to both sides of the aisle in the overheated hyperbolic hate speech was nice as well. Not going into the politics here, but it was good to see neither side portrayed as correct. Yeah, I agree, Luke. I think that was the thing that made the hate crime storyline such an excellent one. It, there was never one side particularly deemed as the right side. You got inflammatory speech from both sides, and it was up to the reader to determine whether or not you agreed with what they said or not. Nothing was ever shoved in your face. Nothing was ever told, this is how you should think. It was just the story was laid out there, and I think that's why it, for me, sits as a better story than some more heavy-handed stuff. I hate to point at the Denny O'Neill type stuff, but <clears throat> it was a different time, and I think at that time, writing stories like this was more groundbreaking. And then in the 90s, we were enough removed from the civil rights era that we didn't feel the need to write not really. The, the the stories felt more natural, and they felt less, well, in your face, I guess. I keep coming back to that, but it it felt, there there felt like a natural writing style. It didn't feel like it was a message issue. So that's what I liked about it. Luke continues off, enjoyed having the professor on as well. Lord knows he was better than that guy who did Way of the Warrior. Oh, Luke. I think the Way of the Warrior storyline was one of my favorite ones I did, and I really enjoyed having you on. I never knew that much about Hawkman at the time, and I was glad to have you on. And I guarantee Luke will be having you on pretty soon again, so look forward to that. Our next email comes from Scott Davis, and it's entitled Warrior and Faster Friends. It says uh, in the beginning of the Jeez, I can't read this. In the beginning of the email, it says, Hi, Sean. I thought I'd send you a quick email to catch up on some of the issues that I've read recently. Detention Comics number one was the one he first read. I really enjoyed these three stories in the issue, and each one of them had a nice little lesson for the teenagers reading the issue. The artwork of Warrior on page 46 was bizarre, though. Yeah, that was the one where Guy had the sort of conehead-type look. Weird. I don't know why the artist Joe Phillips thought that that character had a conehead. Oh, well. 
I still enjoyed the issue. Green Lantern Flash number one, Faster Friends. Then this was an interesting story that incorporates the old generation with a new generation of Green Lantern and Flash. The five artists did seem a bit much, but I kind of liked it. Yeah, it it gave a sort of disjointed feel to the artwork. The story was good, but again, as I commented on the show, the artwork kind of took a hit because they seem to have just a bullpen of artists doing the comic. So there you go. Flash Green Lantern Fast Friends number two. This was a decent story. It got a bit weird when Kyle and Wally magically switched bodies, so I had to reread it a few times to understand what was going on. It had a nice happy ending, though, because Jay is cured of, a disease, of his disease. Overall, the two issues were pretty good, but I can't help but, the, but have a sense of meh about it. That usually means that I'll put the books in storage and probably never read them again. Uh, that's disappointing. I mean... It wasn't the best story out there, but it was a nice story between Wally and Kyle. It was enjoyable. Showcase 96, number one, he said, Cool, just when I thought we were finished with the Bo Smith run, we get one more story with his gang of thugs. Guys Clone and Sledge make an excellent duo. Mm-hmm. It's just a simple beat-em-up issue by Bo Smith, and sometimes that's all you need. Showcase 96, number two. Thanks for reviewing these issues, Sean, because this was a nice, fun story to cap off the warrior run by Bo Smith. The battle between Warrior and Steel and versus Sledge and Joe Gardner was great, but I kind of feel sad that now this is the last of it. Hope you have a great Christmas, and I'm looking forward to your podcast in 2014. Looks like there's some exciting, exciting stuff coming up with Kyle, and I can't wait to get to it. Yep, there's going to be some really fun stuff. We're heading up to issue 100, which I'm really looking forward to, and... I hope you are as well. Thanks, Scott, for writing in. Our next email comes from Robert Ward, and there's no subject title, but that doesn't matter. It starts out with the line, Dear Sean, I've just started my Guy Gardner reading project, and while it's slow starting, I'm really enjoying it so far. That's always good to hear. Last night I read another of the three issues after work, and now firmly halfway through the arc, The Way of the Warrior. It's truly been great. I've really enjoyed reading how the book continues to take shape as the different writers continue on. While Will Jacobs' initial scripts weren't up to par with Gerard Jones or Chuck Dixon, I'll, I'll agree with you there, I think it was pretty neat to see what I thought was his best outing on the title yet, in his final issue. How bittersweet. It's a bit of a headspin to see a character direction constantly change into the vision of the newest writer, but now established in the, let's just say, Bo Smith era. I can't wait to see a little more constant flow here to the ending, even with the constant crossing over. Yeah, there was a bit of inconsistency in the book uh, between the way that Gerard Jones and then Will Jacobs and then Chuck Dixon and finally Bo Smith wrote them. I think Dixon and Smith both had a better handle on the character. Gerard Jones was enjoyable, but he still kind of fed on the idea of Guy being the JLI sort of buffoon. And although it was an interesting time for the character with him with the yellow ring, I much prefer the Bo Smith era, but that's just personal. If you enjoyed it, that's always great. Uh, so long as you're out there reading his stuff, always good. Robert continues, Bo Smith's writing so far has been top notch. While I would argue that the title is suffering from the constant portrayal of guys seeking validation and understanding, I can see that it's nonetheless valid with the addition of the new power set and the much needed erasing of the jerk image that sadly plagues Guy. I wholeheartedly agree. 
Bo Smith has a tenderness to his writing that nicely counters the manly two-fistedness that really shines in issues like number 27, the first part of the Capital Punishment storyline where Guy opens up to Superman, or when he pays his respects to Ice in issue number 25, or in issue number 30 with Arisi having a short conversation with the recently defeated Hal Jordan. While Arisi's part in said issues seems to stick out a bit with the narrative, Guy Gardner being completely out of town, Bo Smith perfectly frames and makes the reader, or at least me, feel for Aresia, and beautifully showcase that the Guy Gardner title is going to be so much more, or could have been so much more, than the high-octane, manly two-fistedness of issues 22 and 23, which set the stage for the Voldary powers a la the Warrior of the Waters. Water of the Warriors. Blah. Yeah, I agree. Bo Smith has the ability to write both fun, action-packed tales, and also write some of the most compelling, thought-provoking, well, not really thought-provoking, but emotion-grabbing issues. If that Christmas issue doesn't get to you, I don't know what would. I don't know if you've gotten issue 39 yet, uh, Robert, but when you do, prepare to be amazed, because the scene with Guy and his father is brought there by the Spectre and Phantom Stranger is just amazingly touching and something that I don't think you would see in a comic book written by someone in modern times. I don't think the character would have been given this kind of this kind of a story. So it's awesome. Now with that out of the way comes the first of two questions for this email. You constantly have said how you would like to have like to show readers that comics could be fun, so would you mind recommending some comics that you would you have enjoyed in the past and present? Is there another Bo Smith comic that you would recommend over all his other works? I'm dying to know. Well, Bo has done some work in Eclipse Comics. I think he did a comic called Bad Blood, I want to say. I could be wrong, but uh, he's also done one called Winona Earp, which I've heard is highly rated. I'd definitely go check that out. And also... Cobb Off the Leash is another good one. I need to pick that up. Uh, I haven't picked that up, but Michael Bailey is recommended highly over on uh, Views from the Long Box. If you can go find uh, issues of Cobb Off the Leash, I think it's called, go check that out. It's got a story by Bo Smith and art by Eduardo Barreto, and it is just a fun, action-filled comic. And uh, Barreto does some great art, so definitely go check that out. As for modern comics that are fun, I would Definitely recommend the uh, run of Hawkeye being done by, oh, it's not Bendis, is it? No, it's Matt Fraction. Matt Fraction. Go check that out. And I've also been reading Superior Spider-Man. That's kind of fun, but it's more of a dark sort of twisted tale wondering what's going to happen with uh, Doc Octopus and Peter Parker's body. Uh, also, I've heard the Mark Wade run on Daredevil is really good now, uh, and The Flash over in DC Comics. So if you're a DC fan, pick up uh, current issues of The Flash. That's been awesome. Aquaman, can't can't recommend Aquaman enough, especially with Paul Pelletier art. Good stuff. So there's a few recommendations of modern stuff to listen to or to read. Robert continues with Thomas DJ recommending Chase previously on our show and my own recent discovering of the awesomeness of Bob Haney's Teen Titans. Oh, Haney is a hoot. I'm starting to create a nice list of titles that will hopefully be well worth looking into when my spare money is present. There are various titles here and there, mostly DC with the occasional Marvel, but I'd love to hear any and all recommendations to look into, if you could. 
I would have never imagined hearing the Leylands on Hey Kids Comics looking at G.I. Joe and Conan, two titles that I had previously no desire to look into, could, could have made me interested and add those to my wish list for someday. But they have, and thus the email. With the call-up recommendations and fun books that I may or may not have heard of, uh, brings me to my next question, one I was hoping to get some help with since I don't know who to turn to. In this recent reading project of Guy, I've discovered a spark of curiosity in regards to Wonder Woman and was wondering, do you know anyone who could help me recommending and dissecting the various periods of Wonder Woman? I have to admit that Wonder Woman has never been a character on my radar and never felt any draw to her, but seeing her with the JLA and Guy, can't, I can't help admit that this is perhaps a misstep and time to correct it. Even her outfit within this period, containing the Way of the Warrior, isn't exactly the best. No, it's not. So if you could recommend any great titles from the 80s, 90s, or 2000s, both Smith or not, I would greatly appreciate it. As well as any help you may provide to point me to a fellow podcaster who can be a nice rundown of what Wonder Woman would be considered a nice introduction as well as to what to avoid. Well, unfortunately, I don't know of any Wonder Woman comic podcast. Um, I would recommend anything done by Gail Simone. She's always good. Uh, I've heard the Greg Rucka run of Wonder Woman is good. John Byrne is pretty lauded, but I know he took a different tack on Wonder Woman, so uh, your mileage may vary, but there's a couple ideas for you. So I hope that helps you out. Our next email comes from, well, the man whose promo I just played a few minutes ago, Mr. Michael Bradley. His email is entitled, Random Thoughts on Recent Episodes. And it starts out, Sean, as you know, I'm really bad at emailing. <laughs> You're not even half as bad as emailing as I am. I'm lucky that if I get through writing promos to my show, much around getting emails out to some of the podcasts I love to listen to. So do not feel bad, Mr. Bradley. But he says, uh, continues on. So here are some random thoughts that have been that have been floating around in my mind on recent episodes. And better yet, they're all in completely random order. I could look up issues, but as Andrew Leyland might say, I can't be bothered. Always good. Bonus points if you read them in your best Andy Leyland impersonation. I can't even do, you know, bad Andy Leyland impersonations, so there you go. Well, except for maybe hot comics. Oh, God, that was awful. Anyway, number one, he says, while I was, while, as I said in an email to Professor Allen, I disagree with the extent and nature of the preachiness of the Bloodsport Superman issue he covered in his excellent Quarterbin podcast, I will say it sounds as if the Green Lantern and Green Arrow issues dealt with the issues of race and bigotry with a much gentler hand. I haven't read these particular issues myself, so I'm judging only by your synopses and reviews, but it does seem as if Chuck Dixon and Ron Mars were able to craft a story that dealt with it in a much more natural manner, as much as it can be. These social issues, whether it be racism, alcoholism, abuse, or something else, quite often come off as a bit forced in superhero books. No matter how naturally you can fold into the plot or characters, at the end of the day, addressing those issues isn't the prime directive of superhero funny books. Though that shouldn't be taken as them not being able to be used as a platform to address such issues, just that it is very, very difficult. Yeah, I agree with you. There are times when you can allow things to naturally evolve over time. Um, an example of that, I think, is going to be later on in the Green Lantern run, in, at least in this Green Lantern run, there was going to be an issue that deals with uh, another hate crime where I think a member of Kyle's apartment gets beaten because some homophobe is really upset that one of those guys in the apartment is gay. 
I haven't read the issue. I know it's a Judd Winnick one, so this is one that I'm kind of iffy on. But I've heard really impressive things about it, and I can't wait to get to that. So when it's brought forth naturally over the course of time, and I think that's the one thing that benefits the storyline, is if it's not just introduced and dealt with, if there's a buildup to it, that helps with it. When it's just plopped in there, like the alcoholism issue of Green Lantern a little while back, then yeah, it feels really forced and feels like they're hitting you over the head with a message. Statement 1A. One of my early thoughts when thinking of through that was that Superman, to whom all modern-day superhero books can trace their lineage, started out with a story started out with story after story filled with social type issues. But at the same time, while Superman in his early days was a social crusader and champion of the oppressed, the social issues weren't really being addressed in the stories, so much as being used to drive the plot. So there is that. And then 1B, he says, any thoughts, recommendations on superhero comics or story arcs that have best dealt with social issues? Hmm, like I said, the Green Lantern issue that we're going to have coming up dealing with the homosexuality is a good one. Obviously, the hate crimes one. I'm certain Luke Giaconetti would probably point to the a Demon in the Bottle storyline that ran through the Iron Man book. Um, some great art. I think that was Bob Layton doing the artwork on there. So... That's always a good one if you're wanting to deal with alcoholism and the repercussions of that. And and what I would think would be a natural storyline. So there's a couple of uh, ideas for you out there. Back to the email goes number two. I'm really glad that you're covering the Green Lantern Corps quarterly issues, even though the quality has been, well, let's just say average overall. And the series isn't exactly a critical component of the franchise, the series does contain a lot of stories featuring a look at lesser-known Green Lanterns that just don't get the time in the ongoing narratives of Kyle, Guy, John, or Hal. Having enjoyed the tale's backups we covered on Green Lantern's Light, even though the quality of those was equally as hit and miss, I was looking forward to covering the quarterly books down the road. Nice to know that they're getting some love. Yeah, in general, the Green Lantern Corps quarterly books have been... They have been a mixed bag, but there's been some really good gems in there. The North storylines have been fun. The early Alan Scott stuff, where he was being portrayed as an older man and his life as a hero, an older hero, was really enjoyable. And there even been some recent issues that have been kind of fun, nonetheless. There have also been some really awful ones, like the Muppet Bugs and Tubby Oprah Green Lantern. So, yeah, you take the good, you take the bad, and... Take them all, and there you have Green Lantern Corps Quarterly. Number three, going back to Michael's email, it says, Given the quote-unquote trouble-filling time you did during Mr. Roboto, might I recommend against using Shine On You Crazy Diamond for the opening music? Ugh. Although, if it's that or Avril Lavigne, as always, vamp, Forrest, vamp. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, Avril Lavigne. I caught flack from you and from Thomas DJ for it, so I apologize. I don't plan on uh, using Shine On You Crazy Diamond anytime soon because although my love of Pink Floyd is really, really high, I don't know if I could talk for the entirety of a Pink Floyd song. In fact, I uh, during the issue with the Machine Messiah, there's actually a song by the band Yes off, I think, one of their more sort of concept-heavy albums in the 70s that was about ten and a half minutes long, and I thought about putting that in and then I thought no no one wants to listen to me talk and Babylon for that period of time so I skipped over it Mr. Robota was the choice 
Continuing on, number four, who did put the bomb in the bomb a bomb a bomb? It's been more than 50 years. I think we deserve an answer. I'll get right on that, Michael. I'll check Google on that. Number five, in the issue where Access showed up, you mentioned that there was a retcon that Galactus destroyed Krypton. I just wanted to clarify that it wasn't that wasn't the case. Oh, okay, cool. In Superman Fantastic Four, a tabloid-sized story written in pencil by Dan Jerkins and inked by Inker McInksalot? I don't know, either. It was teased that Galactus was responsible for, or at least played a part in, Krypton's destruction, but, spoiler alert, revealed later that in the story, while Galactus wanted to devour Krypton, he arrived after its go-boom time, and he was unable to. Still, it's a really good crossover that I can recommend, and bringing it back home, it is the only other time outside the three Marvel-DC crossover series, DC vs. Marvel, DC Marvel All Access, and DC Marvel Unlimited Access, that Access was mentioned. He doesn't appear as he does in the Green Lantern issue, but Superman makes a reference saying that Access helped him bridge dimensions so he could seek out the Fantastic Four. Interesting. And if it was one of those tabloid-sized ones, I would love to take a look at that, because... The tabloid issues, or those tabloid-sized comics, were always fun reads. Number six, he says, Ironic that issue so 93 came out immediately before Christmas, yet dealt with the story more fitting for Halloween. But at least you worked in Ave Maria later in the episode. Happy holidays, and while we're on the subject, am I the only one who thought the story felt something like a dead man story wedged into a Green Lantern book? No, you weren't the only one. It was a dead man story wedged into a Green Lantern book. It would have felt more akin to a Batman and the Outsiders from the 90s, but or not from the 90s, from the 70s, but there you go. That's it for now, Michael says. As always, keep up the good work, and congrats on hitting, or at least nearing, 100 episodes. A feat be proud for sure. Michael. P.S. I'm putting it in this P.S. so you can skip the reading this on the air, but I hope you and your family had a great Christmas. Well, we did, Michael. I hope you had the same. I really am glad to know you as a podcast fellow, and I'm so glad to hear that your podcast, Batman and Superman, is coming out, or by this time is actually out. Go listen to it again. I mean, go listen to it the first time if you haven't already. And even though we're coming up to the 30-minute mark on the podcast, I'm going to keep powering through here and read another email from Scott Davis. This one was called Machine Messiah Makes Me Mad, and that's the same for me. He writes, Hi, Sean. I hope you had a nice Christmas and New Year's. I just thought I'd start off 2014 with a bang and catch up on some of your Just One of the Guys episodes. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Green Lantern number 88. This was a pretty good issue, and it starts off with a nice flashback of Kyle and Alex on a beach while Kyle is visiting her grave. I thought it was funny when her sister, Amy, starts scolding him because it reminded me of why Kyle missed Alex's funeral because he was having relations with an alien on a distant planet shortly after Alex's death. Ooh, I forgot about that. Yeah, the the other, you know, Green Lantern that he made the beast with two backs with, and then she decided to kill herself. Ugh. Thomas' comment about the artwork of Kyle's teeth in this issue was hilarious. You guys mentioned that you think Kyle's mom is a MILF, and I'm not so sure about that, but I can kind of see where you guys are coming from. Uh, it may be an age thing, Scott. There you go. Unless you were joking. No, no, we weren't. Ugh, Machine Messiah is terrible. What are we do? Where are we going with this character? Only downhill, Scott. Only downhill. Green Lantern number 98. This was a very graphic cover with Kyle's face being tortured by the Machine Messiah. Thanks, Sean, for the image of Kyle flapping in his bedroom. <laughs> You're welcome for that. 
Kyle got really excited and he saw Tyler on the street. Is Kyle blind? Did he not notice that Tyler was hunched over about to puke his guts out while hanging onto a bottle of gin? Uh, no, I didn't even notice that. I guess that does uh, kind of lead credence to the next issue being a alcoholics anonymous friendly issue. Ugh, Machine Messiah sucks, Scott says. On page 8, he looks like a souped-up version of Short Circuit. Yep, Johnny Five is alive, and in this episode, he completely and totally sucks. The splash on page 19 is excellent of Kyle using his ring to create superheroes to fight Machine Messiah, and as you mentioned, Wonder Girl looks, especially looks like she's enjoying herself. Mm-hmm. So Kyle's imagination beat Machine Messiah. Weak. Yikes, the phone call for Donna on the last page doesn't look good. Good call about the mellow yellow advertisement opposite Donna's phone call. The guy doing the pig face definitely takes away from the dramatic scene. <laughs> yeah, I don't get those ads. <sighs> Weird. I don't want to play a spoiler, but I looked up Machine Messiah on Comic Vine, and apparently he's never made subsequent appearances to date. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> don't be sorry. I'm good that they got rid of this crap character in just two issues. Green Lantern Court... Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 1, I really enjoyed this issue. Jack T. Chan's storyline was excellent. It was very violent, and Flint Henry's artwork was much better than in the Guy Gardner Warrior Annual Number 1. I wholeheartedly agree. Your comment on page 5 about the space rabbi going around and circumcising kids was hilarious. Actually, both of you guys were hilarious reviewing this issue. Well, thank you again. The Alan Scott story was pretty good, and it was nice to see Nort back with a new sidekick. Basically, if you're a sax player eating dog food in an alley in New York, you're not a very good sax player. I think sax girl needs to give it up. Ugh, we get reminded again that Hal knocked boots with a 13-year-old Aresia. Yeah, that, that'll keep coming up. Can we drop this now? I think we've had enough. If Aresia is 13 then, then how can she get her driver's license? Uh, comics? I guess. I guess the fact that she drove her car into a tree explains it. No, it's because she was a woman. Send all your hate mail to just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Continuing on, Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 2, I'm really enjoying these quarterlies so far. It's been a nice break from the regular Green Lantern story arc. Page 4 has an excellent John Stewart quote. When Hal happens to ask John if anything has happened to Rose, John says, Yes, Hal, I've happened to her. Awesome. The Alan Scott story was pretty good, too. I didn't really understand the end, though. Is Doiby dead or not? No. Doiby's still alive, and uh, he's still alive. It was funny that after they visited the zoo, it, I'm sorry, it was funny that they visited the zoo afterwards. I love the two-minute worry storyline about the Green Lantern trying to stop the tractor. Yeah, that was a really good one. Oh, who was that? Was that by Mark Wade? Yeah, it was Mark Wade. He says, it was Iceland. The Lonely Man story was a weird one, but I liked it, so I guess Waverly Sayer is a, technically another Green Lantern from Earth. Does his lone appearance qualify him to be in the same group as other famous Earth Green Lanterns? Uh, if your Green Lantern is a uh, sort of uh, redneck Grizzly uh, Adams type, then yeah. The trouble with Yellow was hilarious. Sean, you, empath you emphatically and hilariously mentioned that you hated the story, but I think the reason Krizak was just a made-up children's story that Remus was telling the kid. No, it wasn't. It was an awful, awful Muppet Bug story, and it deserves to be forgotten in everyone's memory. Sorry, Scott, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I think the last line in the story sums up saying, Actually, no, the Guardians, their great wisdom, would never hurt a fly. Or choose Krizak. I think this means there never was Krizak picked his Green Lantern. It's a weird one. Okay. 
We'll agree to disagree. The Nort story was bizarre, but I liked it. The reveal of the cats at the end was hilarious. Yes, that was one of the better Nort storylines in the Greenlander Quarterly, Greenlander Core Quarterly book. I looked up Luke Giaconetti's surgery podcast on the Two True Freaks website, and it was excellent. I must admit that I got a bit squeamish listening to the details. Oh, okay, a lot squeamish, but it was very informative for men's health. I forwarded it to a friend of mine who was considering it. Talk to you later, Scott. Yep, Luke Giaconetti, if you didn't know, did a podcast about, oh, a certain sensitive surgery, uh, dealing with men's health issues, and if you're a man and want to know about it, go check it out at twotruefreaks.com. I think it should be in, like, the others episodes, but yeah, just do a search for it. It's it's a good show, and Luke is very forthcoming in it, and did a great job at speaking about something that, you know, men usually aren't very comfortable talking about. I've got a couple more emails from Scott, but I'm going to save them for another time. I'm going to go ahead and get to one by Tom Penrees, host of In Country, a non-podcast, which if you're not listening to, go check it out. It is amazing. He does some great history about the uh, comic and a lot of history pertaining to what was going on at the time that the comic was supposed to be going on. Really great stuff. But Tom writes in episode 88, specifically Donna Troy. He writes in, Sean, I know you're several episodes ahead of where I am right now. As I feel deeply, as I fell deeply into podcast debt over the past few months and been playing catch up for the most of December. That being said, I continue to enjoy what I hear and I can't wait to hear more. Well, thank you, Tom. I've got to say the same thing about in country. You know, I know you've been backed up on the uh, taking flight thing with Robin, but you've been coming out every every other week with in country and it has been amazing. I'm really loving the story. And right now where I'm up to is issue 13, where Marx has left the has left the squad and the new characters are coming in and it looks like there's going to be some conflict going on there, maybe some racial conflict. So I'm looking to see how they take this. It should be interesting. Anyway, Tom continues during episode 88, Thomas DJ made a comment about how Donna Troy could fly around and kick the butt of anyone who crossed her. However, as funny, uh, however, as funny as the visual would have been, it's slightly inaccurate. I know that the dark stars had been canceled by this point, but I don't know if Donna was still operating as a Dark Star, and if she was, of course she could fly, but she had lost her Titan-given powers a few years earlier after the total chaos, so she probably couldn't fly and didn't have the strength, which possibly explains why she's so much of a wimp at this point. That makes sense. I would completely buy into that. Uh, I was unaware of the total chaos storyline, so I will, I will bow to your knowledge on this, sir, because you are the Titans person around here. Tom continues on saying, I didn't want to write in and get all geek nickpick anyway. That's why we have these shows, to, to be geeky and nitpicky. Why would I be doing this otherwise? Anyway, he says, I wanted to point out that in the course of listening to you and Thomas talk about how badly Donna has written an issue, I realized that her arch enemy is not any supervillain, but the editorial staff at DC Comics. Mm, I'm not going to disagree with you at all. Donna was originally supposed to have powers after Total Chaos, and that got set aside for her to be a housewife on a farm in Jersey with the Team Titans. <sighs> then Editoria decreed that she was to become a Dark Star, so it was time for Terry Long to divorce her and everything else in her life to be taken from her. Then she gets into a nice relationship with Green Lantern, and instead of having a happy life for, for, for a while, it's time for John Byrne to drive her ex-husband and kid off a cliff and completely erase her from existence for a little while. 
All right. Thank you for confirming that, Tom. Now I know that, not that I want to blame John Byrne, but there, there's the answer to all that. He continues, I half expect her to come back in the next company-wide crossover as the big bad villain whose power is to destroy all happy lives, relationships, and marriage. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be Donna Troy. <laughs> That's Dan DiDio. Anyway, I can't wait to check out the next eight or nine episodes I have left before I finally catch up. Keep up the great work. Tom, thank you for the email. I'm so happy that you wrote in, and I feel awful that I haven't written into to end country because I really want to talk about issue 13. That was really great getting to hear marks who we've heard develop in the story, you know, find him have his going away, the introduction of new characters. This all sounds like it's building up to even more and more interesting episodes. You're doing a great job with the show and I can't recommend it highly enough. Go check out in country folks, but that's going to close the email bag I'm sorry that I just kind of barreled through a lot of these. You'll find out at the end of the episode why I did, but I'll get on to that at, of course, the end of the episode. But right now, I need to get into my coverage of Green Lantern number 97. Green Lantern 97 was cover dated April 1998 and released on February 4th, 1998. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that, that information. The cover price was $1.95 U.S. and $2.75 Canada, and the title was Loose Ends. The writer again was Ron Mars, guest penciler was Mike McCone, anchor was Terry Austin, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Chris Heliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. High above the skies of Manhattan, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is fighting off the bulleted supposed son of Darkseid, and thinking to himself that he must have hit the big league, since he now has recurring villains. We then cut to earlier in the day, where Kyle is sitting relaxing in a booth in Radu's coffee shop. Shopkeeper and landlord Radu approaches Kyle to refill his mug and ask what's been keeping him in such a glum mood. Kyle thanks Radu for his concern, but before he can deflect the questioning, apartment eight Allison hops into the booth to give Kyle a little company. Radu leaves the two to talk, and Allison breaks the tension by asking Kyle about Donna. Surprised, Kyle says that he doesn't know what's going on between them, and he doesn't want to burden Allison with his problems. But Allison presses the issue, and eventually Kyle relents. We cut back to the fight between Graven and Kyle, where we learn that the Zeta Beam that blasted him in issue 75 buried him deep within the Earth's crust, and he spent all this time digging his way out. Kyle and Graven exchange blows, with Kyle holding his own against the villain's optic blasts. Back at Radu's, Kyle tells Allison that he loved Donna, but since the death of her ex-husband and son and stepdaughter, everything has gone downhill. With her even returning in the locket, Kyle had pledged to her. Allison tells Kyle that most relationships develop initially as friendships. Cutting back to the fight, we see Kyle letting out his frustrations on Graven with a giant ring construct Thor, that it's back to the coffee so shop for more conversation. Allison points out that Kyle is mad because at Donna because she won't let him protect her, and Kyle admits that he wants to come to her rescue. Allison replies that sometimes what a woman needs and what a man thinks she needs are two different things, and maybe right now Kyle just needs to be a friend. Kyle balks at the idea, saying that men aren't built to drop back to being friends after being lovers, as he begins to sketch something at the table. Going back to the fight, Kyle is starting to gain the upper hand until Graven pulls both of them into the bay, 
Then we quickly go back to Allison and Kyle finishing up their conversation, with Allison saying that she will always be there for Kyle. But before she can get her final words out, a customer comes in from the rain, talking about some freak tearing down up downtown, looking for Green Lantern. Realizing that he has to take care of this, Kyle hastily leaves the coffee shop without his sketch pad. Allison picks it up, and seeing the unfinished drawing of Donna, he, she realizes that this is not over yet. Once more at the fight, Kyle is taking the battle to a graveyard and is handing Raven's ass to him. Everything is going well until the two are bathed in a haze of blue electricity. The next thing Kyle sees is a futuristic city populated with people who are in no way happy to see Green Lantern and display their displeasure by beating the ever-loving snot out of Kyle Rayner. As I may have mentioned at the beginning, this is a very exposition-heavy issue with an interesting conversation between Kyle and Allison that might be leading to what Allison might have wanted to happen between them. There is a lot of subtext, subtext in the conversation that could make you believe that Allison might have more than just feelings of friendship, but again, Ron Mars writes it in a manner that allows the reader to take it for whatever they want. Plus, it leads into an interesting story involving a certain 30th century superhero team. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Anyhow, let's go ahead and look at the issue uh, cover to cover, starting, of course, with the cover, which is done by Mike McCone and Terry Austin, and it's kind of a mess, in my opinion. They take what is a dramatic pose of Draven holding Kyle above his head in a triumphant manner, and... Add all this additional energy crackling around Graven's eyes and rain splashing off his legs and the ground, and it's its all just really too busy, and it takes away from the simplicity of a villain looking like he's about to power slam the hero of this book. If you take away all the additional art, the rain and the splotches and all that, it's just a very simple, effective pose that would really get you interested in it. But with all the additional material that McCone's put in here to kind of jazz it up, it it just looks cluttered and unfocused. Page one, and the same thing can be said for the first page here, with the radiant energy coming off Kyle deterring from the overall composition of the art. Um, and McCone and Austin do a really good job of drawing the characters and backgrounds. It's all very detailed, and the characters look good, but... There's just so much going on with all the extraneous energy that, again, it detracts from the actual figure work here. Uh, I am glad, however, that McCone does draw a pretty nice background in the city, so that's always nice. Page 2. Again, I can't emphasize enough how much I love the character of Radio. He, for my money, is the paw-cant of this book. He's the one here to give Kyle word worldly advice and his personality is so captivating that you really can't help but want to have him more and more in the book. Radu is 
one of the great characters to come out of this. And I don't even know if he's, he's probably not even anywhere in the new 52, which again is one of the, he's just one of those minor little characters that came forth in this book. And sadly, unfortunately had to go once the whole revamp started. Page three, we get in the coffee shop scene of the book, a nine or seven panel grid, which allows for a lot of exposition between the characters, which I will admit that Ron Mars is really good at. Allison isn't as sexy as Pelletier drew her, but at least she's not wearing a workout shirt with an underboot window, so there's always this. Plus on this page, on panel four, Kyle was trying to catch up on some reading, and you know Kyle is kind of a nerd because the reading he was wanting to catch up on was The Lord of the Rings. So, awesome. Kyle's a Tolkien fan. Nerds unite. Moving on in the book to more of the action scenes, on page 6, unlike on the cover, the rain on this page isn't as ob obtrusive. It looks like it was added in after the art was finalized, and it's just thin white streaks crisscrossing across the panels. It gives you an image of the rain droplets falling down, and I think it's much better than the sort of gooey splotches of rain all over the place. And I really shouldn't say gooey splotches all over the place, because... That makes me feel uncomfortable. Then moving on to page 7, panel 4. Again, this bugs the heck out of me. We have another example of Kyle just flaunting the ring as he sits here with the ring on his finger, posed with his hand right in front of his face for everyone to see. In the previous issue, Sonar saw the ring on Kyle's hand without it even being put in his face like this. This is apparent, and I it just bugs me the fact that one moment the ring is completely visible to everyone to see, and the other moment it isn't. Either Kyle has a secret identity or he doesn't, and when he goes around flaunting the ring like this, it makes me think that he doesn't care a whit about his secret identity. Page 9, I find it amusing that uh, the billboard in Times Square, the one that has the speakers on it, where villains can announce, you know, their master plans to destroy the city, which it doesn't. It doesn't have speakers on it, but you know that. The billboard here has a Soder Cola image on it. So, Soder Cola, the official drink of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Page 10, I like that Kyle's not holding back here. In fact, he might be just venting a little bit of his frustration out on Graven, which is awesome because Graven is one of these villains who can definitely take out the punishment. So it helps for both Kyle that he's taking out someone or that he's fighting someone that he can take his frustrations out and, you know, take them out in a completely aggressive and not holding back manner. Page 12, we get another dialogue heavy nine, dialogue heavy nine panel grid here. And on panels one and two, we get some backstory on Allison and how she was taken advantage of by a photographer and how that affected her relationship with her former boyfriend. Then moving on on panel 7, all throughout this book you're left wondering if Allison is actually trying to come on to Kyle, or actually be a friend to him. Like I said at the beginning, it's all in what you want to read into the book, and it's never explicitly said. You get the idea that she might be into Kyle, or she might just be trying to be a friend to him. This is left up to you, and it's also left up to later storylines. So, I'm really enjoying the way Ron Mars is writing the book. Page 17, panels 7 through 9. This is the only sort of cheesy moment in the dialogue, where Kyle comments, 
that the Rainite side will wash everything away. It's a trite cliche that really does a disservice to the writing that came before it, which was really excellent. The uh, relationship story between Kyle and Allison, their sort of blooming friendship and maybe more, is kind of put down by this trite cliche of the rain's coming. It'll wash everything away. Sad. Page 16, panel 4. And here Allison is compassionately taking Kyle's hand. The hand that has the freaking ring on it. Make up your mind. Is it there or is it not? Can she see it or can they not? It, uh, it frustrates me so. Then on page 4, Allison is cut off before she's able to finish her statement. And it might have been a statement that specifically says how she felt about Kyle. She says she wanted to be there for Donna. I'll be here for you, Kyle. I, and then she gets cut off. So you don't know exactly whether she was saying that she wanted to be more than a friend to him or that she just wanted to be a friend for him. Again, very good writing by Mars, letting you determine what is going on in Allison's mind. Page 17, panel 9, as Allison sees the sketch pad, she says, it's not finished. And just in that one bit of dialogue, there's a lot of things you can take from it. You can either take from the fact that Kyle's been sketching Donna, and Allison realizes that it's not finished between Kyle and Donna, or that it's not finished between Allison and Kyle. Again, all up into your interpretation, all letting the reader be an intelligent reader of the book, and trying to figure out what's going on inside the book itself. It's not being spelled out for you, and I love, love that. Pages 18 through 20, Kyle is just pounding on Graven in these panels, and he is not even breaking a sweat. This, to me, either says that Kyle is that awesome a Green Lantern, or Graven is that lame a villain. My vote is on the latter. Then finally, on page 21, panel 2, this character that Kyle encounters, keep her in mind, because she might be an important character in the next upcoming episodes. We'll have to find out about that in a week or so. But that does it for the notes. Let's go ahead and run through the book and take a look at some of the ads that they have in here. Starting off at the front inside cover, they've got Superboy, the last boy on Earth. And we've got, well, I guess Superboy has been inspired once again by the Man of Steel as he's grown his hair out and, well, I guess lost his shirt. And now he's, uh, looks like he's firing a gun as well. It is a four-part adventure that returns Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet to the Superboy book. I think uh, Charlie Niemeyer talked a little bit about this when we did our uh, Superboy Green Lantern crossover. So anytime Grummet and Kessel are in the book, always good story. A few more pages in, we get the same little kid carrying the baseball character, or playing, carrying the baseball player, and saying, Hey mom, can I keep him? It's an ad for baseball cards. You know how I feel about that. Then we've got multipath movies, and I remember talking about a couple of these. One is Cyber Swine, the one about the pigs. Then there's Choose Your Own Nightmare, which is, I guess is a choose-your-own-adventure story with nightmares. And then a Popeye one. And I've never seen a Popeye multipath adventure, but I guess they had one, and so there you go. Then at the middle of the book, we have a 
really bizarre Twix ad that has a hand holding up a Twix bar, and then underneath that has a sad smiley face saying, Can a friend who asks you to share really be called a friend? Two for me, none for you. So, selfishness and Twix, going hand in hand. The next ad, or the next page, is a sort of weird ad for Captain Crunch with a basketball character, or a basketball player, animated basketball player, with a incredible underbite who likes to eat crunch berries. And you and the captain can make it happen. Which, uh, left to your own imagination, yeah, that could be really creepy. A few more pages in, we get It's the Birds, the Plane, It's Superman, and he's back on the Game Boy, which I guess is the Superman Game Boy game, which, unfortunately, this wasn't the Game Boy Color. This was just the Game Boy Classic, which was uh, an, pretty much a green screen type Game Boy, but it's the Superman from the Superman animated series. I never had a Game Boy at this time, and I don't think I ever played these games. I'm certain you could probably find an emulator for it out there somewhere. The next ad is the Wizard Comics Magazine 5th uh, Annual Fan Awards Ballot, and it's got uh, various things. Favorite writer, favorite penciler, inker, painter, colorist, letterer, editor, hero, heroine, villain, supporting character, ongoing series, one-shot, publisher, comic merchandise, favorite comic TV or movie project, and comic greatest moment in 1997. To give you a little context, some of the comics' greatest moments that they have down here is the A returns to Captain America's mask and Captain America number seven, Marvel's heroes return to the Marvel Universe and Heroes Reborn the Return number four, the return of Magneto in Uncanny X-Men number 350, Superman wrestles an angel as Modell in hand-to-hand -hand combat in JLA number seven, Grant Morrison wackiness, and the Thunderbolts revealed as the masters of evil in Thunderbolts number one. So, hmm interesting stuff a lot of let's see oh here's a nice one uh favorite comic tv or movie project one of them was space ghost coast to coast that's always nice the spawn movie and the spawn hbo cartoon and spider-man the animated series along with batman and superman adventures were the uh comic or tv things that they were talking about at the time so that gives you a bit of uh context of what was going on at the time then the next ad is for the Millennium Giants crossover that happened in the uh, Superman books at the time, where basically the electric blue Superman and I guess the red Superman sort of combined to bring back the regular Superman. Uh, I'm certain Michael and Jeffrey will be getting this sometime soon. You know, unfortunately, and I talked to Michael about this, I lapped him basically in the uh, comics coverage thing, so I feel really embarrassed. But of course, I'm only covering essentially two comics and they're covering like four then plus ancillary issues and oh lois and clark and they'll probably be covering to some extent the uh superman adventures so yeah it's crazy but they'll be getting to this eventually and you'll figure out what's going on over it from crisis to crisis then the next page has an ad for the final night and the underworld unleashed trade paperbacks their darkest hour and the gravest evil one was really good one was Underworld Unleashed. So, there you go. Then, the final back inside cover has an advertisement for the Target Shoot Back, Hitman, 10,000 Bullets, written by Garth Ennis and illustrated by John McRae. Uh, I've heard good things about Hitman. 
Garth Ennis is a writer that's hit or miss. I've heard his Punisher Max stuff is really good. I know the Leylands over at Hey Kids Comics really highly regard him. And I just unfortunately have never really read any Hitman. Something I'll probably have to rectify in the near future. And then on the back outside cover is the film that launched a meme that I really can't get enough of. Act like you don't bomb in Phantom, yo! Yes, Dean Koontz's Phantoms. The movie that was completely forgettable. I think I mentioned on the uh, last episode that this movie came and went, and for having such big names as Peter O'Toole, Rose McGowan, Liev Schreiber, and Ben Affleck in it, being written by Dean Koontz, it did nothing, and it's become sort of a joke. Unfortunately, it's become a joke to promote Ben Affleck as Batman. Or maybe to mock Ben Affleck as Batman. Sad, really. What's not sad, however, is that I'm going to be taking a break. Well, it's not sad for me because I need to get a drink after all that talking. And when I come back after playing these promos, I'm going to jump headlong into the issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly number 7. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait, be right back. I need my Avengers... Omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah! Sorry, sorry, I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap's shield there? Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, 
or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! Ow! Ah! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. <sighs> Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And verily, we are back to take a look at Green Lantern Corps Quarterly number 7. It was cover dated Winter 1993 and released on October 19, 1993. It had a cover price of 295 US, 395 Canada, and £2 in the UK. The opening title for the book was Horrors, colon, not as the intestinal organ, but the little two dots, number 1. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Tim Vigil, Inker was Tony Harris, letterer Bob Panaha, colorist Matt Webb, cover art was by Tony Harris, and the associate editor was Eddie Briganza, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. It is a time when the guardians of the universe were not withered homunculi, cloistered in a world and allowing others to act in their name. Long ago, so long as to be scarce believed, the elders of Oa took up arms themselves and quested to bring about their grand designs. Their intent was to expunge the universe of all manner of magics, all things of dark or fanciful nature. The Guardians moved against those who evoked such things. The sorcerers of Jelish, who traded the Italian of infants, the Yattering Tower of Fool, whose sibient voices brought wisdom and ecstasy and madness. The shamans of Ushmiel, who cured ills with feathery caresses. All of these and a hundred hundred others fell to the Guardians. Lastly, Oa turned its cold eye to the malign Empire of Tears, the dread throne world of Ismalt, powered by cruel and perverse entities. The demons of Ismalt delighted by the, in the torment of their invaders. Those guardians found weak of will were induced to pluck out eyes, feast upon their own flesh, suffer tortures bounded only by the demons' own malevolence, which was said to be limitless. And still it was not enough. Ismalt, too, fell to the guardians. The night eons ended, their visions of a clockwork cosmos dawned. All energies, mystical or magical, both good and evil, were gathered up and bound, compressed within the pith of a star, the Starheart. For millennia it churned and pulsed, oh so slowly gaining strength and sentience. In time, the benevolent portion of this essence, foreseeing the need to create a champion and more yearning for some measure of freedom, expelled a part of itself. Seeking pain worthy of assuaging the mystical jetsam wandered. It found Yalan Gur, vain Green Lantern of Sector 2814, mortally wounded by those he had sworn to protect. The Starheart's fragment merged into the dying hero, granting him absolution, if not resurrection. 
As one, they plunge to the earth, seemingly in a fiery portent dropped from heaven itself. Found by a man and pronounced by the wise to be a meteor, the star heart was forged into a lantern of sublime quality. Yalangur's essence had dissipated, but before slipping into the void, promised to bring death, life, and power. The medical, magical energies of the lantern, remade now, were wielded by the one known as Alan Scott of Earth. Of him, tales are plentiful. And thus begins the first story in Green Lantern Corps Corps. Now, if you couldn't tell by all the flowery language, I just basically read the synopsis there, so that was me kind of cheating. But this was an interesting retcon of the Golden Age Green Lantern story, where the ancient mystical energy bonds with Yalan Gur, Earth's first Green Lantern that we learned about in Green Lantern number 19, and then become Alan Scott's G- becomes Alan Scott's GL battery. This also brings back Ismald, which in the GL storyline was first viewed in Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual 2, and now is prominently known as the home for the Red Lantern Corps. Unfortunately, as I'm not reading Red Lanterns or haven't really read too much of Jeff Johns' storyline, all I know is the Red Lanterns are like led by Atrocitus and I guess Guy Gardner now. <sighs> and yeah, they're there. But before I go into the next story, I want to talk a little bit about the cover. The cover, the cover of this book definitely has a Starman look, and you can kind of get that because the artwork is done by Tony Harris, who later in the book will be revealed as the well, he'll be revealed as the artist for the one of the stories here. But he was also very well known for doing the art on the 1990s uh, Jack Knight Starman book. So yeah, it does have that kind of feel with this sort of hunched over, kind of cigarette smoking, very punk looking guy. So it definitely has that feel. It also kind of has a feel of a Vertigo book. And I think the Starman book, probably if they wanted it to be not in DC proper continuity, probably could have easily jived with a lot of the Vertigo books. Your uh, John Constantine Hellblazer, your Preacher books and all that. So there you go. This leads us right into the Alan Scott story called Horrors, colon, number two, which was written again by Ron Mars, penciled by Daryl Banks, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Bob Panaha, and colored by Matt Webb. In perhaps the most unoriginal Halloween costumes ever, Jenny Lynn Hayden and Todd Rice knock at the door of their father, Alan Scott, in hopes of a handout of candy. However, what they get is an eyeful of their now de-aged father, which causes them to spill their bags filled with delicious, delicious M&M candies all over the doorstep. After inviting them in and explaining all the weird changes that have been going on, Alan hears another knock on the door. Expecting a round of trick-or-treaters, Alan opens the door to the unanticipated arrival of the Grim Reaper, searching for Alan Scott's time-distorted soul. Oh, wait, no. It's only Green Lantern Torquemada, the one from Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 4, who wants Alan to help him deal with the mystical Starheart from the opening tale. Alan reassures his family that he will be alright as he heads off into space with Torquemada. Now, oddly enough, even though this is pretty much the current Greenlander team on art and script duties, this really doesn't compare with the then-current stuff. The art is 
average, and the story is okay. There are a couple of amusing moments, like Todd mentioning on page 7 that he and Jade might not be Justice League material, which is kind of odd, because at the time, well, not at the time, but soon after this, they would eventually become members of the Justice League. Of course, the Justice League at the time was almost pretty much inspired by D-listers, so... Well, Blue Devil was there, but yeah. Otherwise, not really the best time for the Justice League. But other than that little humorous moment, there really wasn't much to do with the story. It was just kind of a setup for the other tales in the book. This, of course, leads into the tale called Ashes to Ashes, which again was written by Ron Mars, had art by Tony Harris, colors by Gregory Wright, letters by Steve Haney, and special thanks going out to Wade von Graubecker. In a foggy alleyway in a gothic village, a lone cloaked female hurriedly walks through the stone-hewn streets until she realizes that she's made a wrong turn and is at a dead end. Shockingly enough, this might actually become an actual dead end, as the female is beset upon by three ghoulish beings who want to feast upon this lost soul. But before the vampiric beings are able to make a midnight snack of the girl, ultra-suave Green Lantern Ash politely tells the trio to let the girl go. Retreated to a flashback that shows that Ash used to be a humble farmer whose family was slaughtered by these very same bloodsuckers, and he has vowed revenge on them all. The lead vampire tells the lantern to let them finish their dinner in peace, and Ash responds by burning one of the ghouls with the emerald light. This rightfully ticks off the Max Shrek wannabes, and some Von Helsing level of Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out. Ash blasts the female minion of the night, leaving only the leader to take out, but he pulls out a yellow blade and slices off a number of Ash's fingers, including the one his power ring was on. It looks like the lead vampire has Ash dead to rights, until he gets clocked by an uppercut, allowing Ash to grab the ring of his severed finger and place it on his other hand. Sensing his demise, the undead begs for mercy, but Ash has none, and blasts a beam of light into his chest. Satisfied that he avenged his family, Ash says that he can now stop being Green Lantern. But the girl who was almost attacked at the beginning begs him not to give up, as there are monsters everywhere. Now, this again was one of the better stories in not only this issue of Green Lantern Core Quarterly, but the entirety of the run, even though it was pretty much just a simple revenge tale. Tony Harris, like I said before, will get a lot of recognition going on to be the artist in Jane Robinson's acclaimed Starman series, and his art gives the story, uh, like I said, a very vertigo feel. The vampires are pretty standard-looking ghouls, but Ash's design is very 1990s goth, with the sleeveless jacket with various rings on it, and a weird Green Lantern cross symbol on the back. The violence, again, is minimal, with the amputation of Ash's fingers not being made to be a big deal. It's got some very gothic horror feel to it, but again, and it might just be the books of the time, it wasn't over-the-top violent. In fact, the scene where Ash's hand, or not really hand, his fingers are sliced from him, could easily get through past muster today, especially when you see, oh, people with their heads twisted around, brains blown out, evisceration, and all that. It actually seems kind of tame. 
And oddly enough, previously speaking of Starman, the next tale is written by none other than, than James Robinson. It's drawn by Kirk Van Wormer, inked by Andy Parks and Rich Faber, lettered by Bob Panaha, and colored by Robbie Bush, and had the title of Green Hell. Awakening in his home atop a desolate landscape, Green Lantern Baron begins his morning as he has so many countless times before, by reciting his oath. The alien lantern wonders to himself when the Guardians will allow him to leave this post, a post where he must continuously defend the portal plane from attacks of hordes of demons. For nearly two centuries, he has remained ageless, locked in a constant struggle to keep these hellish beasts from escaping their realm and threatening all of reality. Tired of the never-ending battle, Baron continues on, realizing that he must fight no matter what the cost. But as Baron rallies against the hellish forces, the scene transitions to an Owen Medical Center, as Green Lantern Boudica looks on at her injured trainee. The attending guardians say that the rookie was overwhelmed by space mongrels, and by the time Kilowog was able to rescue him, he was left in this coma. Saddened that her trainee might never recover, Buddha wonders what kind of play, fevered place within himself young Baron lives. And, wow, you can see where Robinson got his reputation as an outstanding writer. Now, like most of the stuff from the 90s, I'm only tangentially aware of it, and this might sound like blasphemy, but I've never read an issue of Starman by Robinson. However, again, it is on my short list of things to read for pleasure, much like my recent read-through of the Preacher series. Barrett is a great example of a very alien-looking Green Lantern, with him looking kind of like a cross between a giant manta ray with arms, and if you know what a planarian looks like, kind of looks like that as well. He also has his own personal oath that he says to recharge the ring, which is kind of cool. I always like it when the Green Lantern Oath is a little different. In fact, I enjoyed in the tale, or not the tales of the Green Lantern Corps, but the Green Lantern Corps stories from the 1980s that Salak actually had Alan Scott's old oath, so that was kind of cool as well. But to find out at the end of the story that all of this is just going on in his damaged, comatose mind is just a really big punch in the gut. It's a really effective story. It it's something that you never would have expected in a comic book. I know it's been done before. I know there was a movie that the Metallica Video 1 was basically based off of. But this is really good story writing, and I'm really impressed with it. And I think it's probably a tribute to James Robinson rather than the book itself. Because we come to the next story called Triumph of the Will, which was written by John Skip and Craig Spector, Pencil by Matthew Jorgensen, inked by Wade Von Grawbadger, lettered by Bob Panaha, and colored by Stuart Shaffitz. On the planet Egregi Zomnia 3, hate those weird names, Green Lantern and obvious Nazi analog Aria attempts to quell the attacks of the yellow skinned adversaries who are keeping him from bringing, quote unquote, peace to the three planets under the, his less than benevolent protection. Aria sets up weapons factories on the planet, polluting the environment and reformation chambers to hold the opposing citizenry. Eventually, Aria conquers the planet, bringing an uneasy peace, but not many of the people living on the world care for his oppressive rule. 
One female, named Celaya, offers herself up to Aria as a sex slave, and after a thankfully off-panel sexual assault, she removes the ring from his finger and swallows it, hoping that her yellow skin will shield it from the tyrant. Of course, when Aria wakes up, he tortures Celia almost to the point of death, before having her taken to a reformation camp where she is shot and killed by one of the camp's guards. Months later, after Aria has ordered the elimination of all the yellows in the camps, the zombified corpse of Celia, animated by the ring she swallowed, rises the mound of corpses via ring energy and has them attack and kill Hitler. Wait, no, I mean Aria, I'm sorry. Crisis averted, the remains of Celia fall apart, and the ring falls to the ground next to her bleached skull and a newly grown rose. <sighs> From the awesome James Robinson story to this. <laughs> Talk about highs and lows. This was even more heavy-handed than the school marm story back in Greenlander Corps quarterly number one. And with a title taken from the Lenny Riefenstahl movie, and the lantern being an obvious analog for Hitler, this one just reeks of message, message issue. The two writers, like the ones in the school marm story, don't have any other comic book writing credits at all. Again, this is according to Mike's Amazing World DC, DC Comics. And the artist only has four more credits. The art isn't painful to look at, but it doesn't catch the eye either, like Tony Harris's did earlier in the book. And as an aside, I've put off writing a synopsis for this story for a long time. I really couldn't get into it. And it's simply because I really didn't want to write or talk about this story at all. It just really wasn't that good. Which is depressing, because the story before it was just really excellent. So, you've got the highs and lows in this book. But finishing up the book, we have the final story entitled The Starheart. And again, it was written by Ron Mars, this time penciled by Mark Tenney, inked by Wade Von Grobacher, lettered by Papa Naha, colored by Matt Webb, and had special thanks to Jason Pearson. Alan Scott and Torquemada finally make it to wherever the heck they were headed to to fight Parallax. <laughs> Wait, no, I mean the Starheart. A powerful thingy composed of dark and light chocolate. Wait, no, I'm sorry, dark and light mystical energy. That's what it was. Alan begins the f to fight the ancient Egyptian god Anubis. Wait, no, I'm sorry, that's the Starheart. Where the ripples from the battle reach out and concern all of the magic-based characters in the DCU and distract the Phantom Stranger from a midday snack of poutine. Eventually, Alan whips up some Rob Liefeld level of goofy armor and slays Parallax, uh, Anubis, Starheart, whatever, but only ends up blowing it up real good and releasing the magic into the universe. But even though Alan kind of failed, Torquemada managed to capture a bit of the Starheart energy in a little globe, thus making sure that Molly and his children weren't killed for whatever reason. Crisis caused, Alan says that he won't be pushed around anymore, and now he will beat some star-hard ass whenever this story gets concluded. <sighs> so let me get this straight. We've got a Green Lantern facing off against an ancient, immensely powerful enemy, 
that has ties to the Guardians in the universe and the beginnings in the universe. Where have I heard that before? Hmm, that's an odd and original idea. Again, I'm not saying that Jeff Johns is a hack, but this tale sure does have some interesting parallels to the whole Hal Parallax thing, especially reimagined by Jeff Johns. The art again was decent, and the inclusion of the magic-based characters was nice, as Alan's energy has more of a magic origin than the Owen Greenlander energy, which is sort of, you know, science magical. There were some neat cameos in here, and uh, some of the characters that showed up there were Lady Blaze, Etrigan, Dr. Fate, the Enza one, I mean, the one with boobs, Darkseid, Lord, Sist- Lord Satanus, the Spectre, and Phantom Stranger. So, that was kind of neat. But overall, this was one of the better issues. I mean, yes, it did have that Triumph of the Will story, which was really, really heavy-handed, I mean, yes, I get the Hitler analogs. We get it. But it did have the really good one about the vampires with Ash, which was pretty cool. And James Robinson doing the story about the comatose Green Lantern was amazing. The art was good in some places. Uh, Tony Harris did a great job. So, overall, I'd have to give this one a thumbs up. But next time out, we're going to be skipping uh, the Greenland Core quarterly books in favor of doing just a single issue. Yes, we're going to be talking about Greenlander number 98, where Kyle, who's been blasted in the future, deals with a certain 30th century superhuman team. I wonder what kind of team that could be. I wonder if someone could tell me what that team is made up of. I'm certain there's someone who can, and I'm certain his name is J. David Weeder. And he's going to be accompanying me next week and the week after that to look at the issues 98 and 99 of Green Lantern. So, everyone, make sure that you come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, where J. David and I are going to be covering some Green Lantern and Legion goodness. Until then, everyone have a good weekend, and we'll catch you next Friday. Bye, folks. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright to respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Lafayette Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast.
The opening music for today's show was Joe Jackson and his song, Breaking Us in Two, off his album, Night and Day. As usual, if you'd like to get this song, there are numerous places you can go get it. But the best place to go get it is Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon link at the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon.com, and any purchase you make there will send a little bit of money back to the 2TrueFreaks. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. So if you're ever thinking about shopping on Amazon, whether it be for music, DVDs, games, televisions, whatever, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.